Hi, and welcome to Season 5 of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hi, everybody. Bob again. I've got great work, How to Make a Difference People Love. And I've got David Sturt on the line. David, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Bob. Uh, It's a pleasure being on your show. You know, right here in small gray text at the bottom of the book, it says, Insights from the Largest Ever Study of Award-Winning Work. What does that mean? Well, that's a great question. Um, we, we did an enormous amount of research um, in preparation for this book. Mm. And that study that's being referenced actually is a composite of four different studies that we did, the, the largest of which was one where we analyzed a random sample of over 10,000 examples of people who had received awards uh, from their organizations for the work that they had done. And that, those, that, that random sample of 10,000 was drawn from a database of over 1.7 million examples of people in regular jobs in every major industry, just about every major job description. And so it's a sampling of people who have made such a difference that their company uh, gave them an award for their work. And those awards, the nominations for those awards were written up. And so we studied those. So that that was one uh, one part of this huge study. Another was a big study we did with Forbes, with their insights group, where we went out and asked questions about uh, some recent work that people had observed, uh, both fr- through the lens of a supervisor, also through the lens of the recipient of some work, and also through the lens of the doer of the work. And we were trying to triangulate what is it that great work looks like and what are people actually doing? What are the activities specifically that cause them to bring about better than expected results? Hmm. Interesting. Now, you, you specialize in, in research, digging down, looking at big data, I would assume, and, and then it's kind of like taking those very dry white papers and humanizing it. Yeah, I, I think um, you know the, the the quantitative study that we did was significant. Then we did about two hundred and fifty one on one interviews to kind of get past just the data mm-hmm. and and get a little more of the texture and the feel of what did it feel like for these people when they made a significant difference and how did they do it? Where did the the thoughts first emerge in their minds? So that allowed us to take several different dimensions in addition to this this big data analysis that we did and and, and that ultimately shaped our view mm. of what people are doing and how they're doing it so so why do you think this book is important now for for business people you know the things that people have said to me um, that are reasons why i think it's really impacted them are that you know we all we're all told from the time really when we start work that you gotta sometimes you gotta just think outside the box. You gotta you gotta approach your work a little differently. We're looking for a way to differentiate against our competitors who are coming on strong, or we are trying to innovate. We feel like we're kind of in a bit of a, a rut. And for all of those reasons that I hear as I travel around uh, North America with people saying we're trying to innovate more, we're trying to get fresh thinking, we're trying to deliver more value. Those are all of the reasons I hear when people say what they love most about the book, because it helps them actually do that, not just think about doing it, but actually do it. And so it's it's particularly relevant from what I'm seeing right now, as so many organizations and so many people in their careers are trying to get a leg up, trying to do something that really creates the kind of value that gets noticed and... Um, and that really generates an impact in their work. Hmm. Now, uh, you know, for people that uh, are in an organization, they're mid-management, maybe even C-suite level, and they're trying to make a difference in their organization, what are some of the strategies that they should uh, approach to trying to get things to move forward? Because it's easy to have an idea. It's almost impossible to get it past committee. Yeah, yeah, great, great point, especially in larger organizations where they've got lots of controls in place and processes that sometimes make that challenging. You know, I, I think I've got a, a few different ways to answer that. Um, you know, the research pointed to 
um, a couple of different insights we gathered around how people think about their work and then about five insights around what people are doing. What specific actions are people taking that end up moving it from uh, from off from where they are today to getting the ideas to actually then taking that idea all the way through to making the difference? And so um, I, I could speak to several of those if you'd like. Sure. But uh, they, they were just interesting insights about how do you bring that about, not only personally, but also with your team or with somebody you're trying to help. Um, uh, produce a kind of difference that's needed in your organization. Hmm. Well, I mean, for for me, I think most people they need to know what are the what's the strategy, what's the stumbling blocks that they're going to run into, so that they when they do start to um, introduce a new concept or say, "Hey, look, I this I think is going to make an amazing difference." How do they communicate that? Because I think that's the biggest falling block on, on a lot of people. They have amazing ideas. They just can't get people on their side. Yeah, <clears throat> that's a great question. So one of the insights that I found particularly interesting uh, relative to that is the kinds of conversations that people uh, have. Um, so often when we think about innovation or difference making, sometimes we think about sort of the lone inventor or, or, or innovator sitting you know, in their cubicle or in their desk or in an open area, trying to come up with a new idea and sort of the solo, uh, the, 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 the solo difference maker. And what I found, and, and all of the interviews bore out, is that one of the key activities or behaviors that people were doing that seemed to have a significant impact on the outcome was something, one principle that we call talk to your outer circle. Uh, you know, we all we all have an inner circle, right, of of uh, both in our personal life, we may have three to five individuals that are our go-to people that we trust um, with any conversation that we might have. And in work, it turns out we have a similar inner circle. It's a small group of people that we are talking to most of the time. And for those who've done conversation traffic analysis, um, it always ends up being similar to our personal inner circle that we really don't talk to a lot of people at work most of the time. And what we found in our research was that those people who had conversations with people in what we call their outer circle, not that little tiny bubble of the same people who tend to have the same thoughts and maybe the same backgrounds, same level of thinking, but but get outside of that inner circle and 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 have conversations with people in other disciplines in other departments if it's a you know a bigger organization people that they might might know a little bit but have not talked about the specific thing they're trying to do and so having those outer circle conversations really accomplishes a few things one is it informs and improves the idea that you have so often we think, oh, I got a great idea and it's awesome, and we, we sort of fall in love with it personally, but haven't really considered the other dimensions of impact that that idea might have in the organization. And, and one of the benefits of going, and for example, if you're in communications, going and talking to somebody in finance, talking to somebody in sales, talking to somebody in operations, getting their perspectives on the difference you're trying to make brings fresh thinking. And that fresh thinking doesn't necessarily mean they go, oh, here's what you should do. I've got the answer for you. But in the course of the conversation, in the dialogue itself, new ideas start emerging that cause you to round out and, and get a broader view of, of not just the difference you're trying to make, but the implications of that difference in a broader context. And I found that to be incredibly valuable from a, a quality of idea standpoint, but the secondary benefit is now you have a community of people who are also now connected to your idea and are now invested in that idea and feel part of it and can also help champion it and help you bring it about and maybe bring down some of those walls that you described that, that maybe uh, attempt to block uh, new ideas from making their way uh, into implementation. 
what I see happening also with those conversations with people outside of your regular circle is they're going to come up with unique uh, rejection concepts or, or reasons why it won't work or whatever. You'll be able to uh, work on those and, and have great answers. And when you present it to the people that have to make the decision, those same rejections are probably going to come up in those meetings. You'll be able to basically slam dunk it. Exactly. Exactly. And and that, that is a huge value from having those outer circle conversations because you'll you'll inevitably be blindsided by just what you don't know and often those who are making approval decisions or who are choosing to either support or slow down your idea are coming from a different point of view than you are and gathering those uh, multiple points of view will help you cover that landscape better. And then, like you say, better prepare yourself to answer or address those potential objections even before you get them. Yeah, and I, I would even go as far to say that you should mention that, oh, by the way, I talked to Joe Gibsons, who is in this company, da, 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 and this is the objection he came up with, and it was a good objection, and this is the answer we have. Because somebody in that room, I say, I've heard of that guy, Joe, and he's a smart guy. Wow, this guy's really got it together because they're never presented on that level. That's right. And I think it also shows you've done your homework mm. and it shows that you've been informed by a broader set of ideas. And, and that always uh, builds a little bit of comfort and a little bit of confidence in the decision makers that are evaluating the strength of your idea. Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to jump in here. This is a little off topic, but, you know, when you're a decision maker, every time you make a decision, you're risking something. You're risking your integrity or sometimes even your job. And most people that are presenting to you aren't thinking of you on that level, are they? They just say, God, can't you just approve it and move it forward? <laughs> That's right. So, um, I wanted to ask, you know, you, you've uh, obviously you've done a ton of research. You, you put all this stuff together. You've, you're getting it into the book. You're editing the heck out of it, which I'm sure was a wonderful process for you guys. Um, for you, what was your aha moment where something that you knew was, was, yeah, I know that, but then it crystallized for you. You say, wow, I now I fundamentally get it. Yeah, that's a good question. And it was a tough journey. You know, when you talked about the editing process and everything else, it was way harder than anything I imagined. You know, you you start by thinking, hey, we got all this amazing research. It'd be great to package this up and put it into a book and share that with a bunch of other people. And, you know, how hard could that be? We got mountains and mountains of research and we got all these great insights. And and then when you actually sit down and try to put words on a page, holy smokes, you know, that's, <laughs> I got a whole new respect for anybody who's written any kind of a, you know, a book that, uh, that seeks to, to, to carry some, some principles forward or some insights forward. It's a, it's a, it's a tough job because there's so many things you could say. Mm. There's almost an infinite, uh, number of ways of saying things or choosing what you say and what you don't. And so it was challenging, but I, I think one of my, one of the big ahas that hit me was that I think before doing all of this research, I thought that innovation was a bit mysterious, that creativity, that how people arrive at new ideas seemed kind of uh, sort of almost magical, almost mysterious, ethereal. It just maybe they just got these, you know, these great creative genes and that the idea just emerges out of their greatness and and then flows out into the world as a as a product or as a new theory or whatever it is and i think the big aha for me was having interviewed so many people and read so many examples of great work it it caused me to go oh wow one it's not so mysterious there seem to be some common denominators some common building blocks some fairly predictable elements that when those things are present the chances of innovation go way up and when those things aren't present it's it's much harder to come up with something that ends up really making a difference and so the 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 clarity that that brought sort of the demystifying is probably the best way i could say that of of the innovation process for me was a big aha it was like oh th this is far more doable far more um even predictable if you will than i previously had thought 
And related to that aha was the other one, which was, oh, these are regular people in regular jobs, just like me. These aren't, you know, innovation and difference making isn't just the purview of the Steve Jobs of the world or the, you know, fill in the blanks on any, you know, amazing innovator that we put up on a pedestal and say, oh, it's because of all of these amazing things. But if you really look at the vast majority of innovation that's happening day in and day out across the world, it's being done by regular people in regular jobs that choose to just think differently about their work and do some things that lead to that innovation. And so that that was a big aha for me. It it you know because I when I grew up you know I grew up uh, having gone through British uh, boys schools in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, where you you learn a lot about education, but not so much about creativity. Mm. And I, so I never really identified myself as being oh I'm a creative person. And so I had to learn my way there to go oh these are the principles whereby creativity and innovation happen and all of a sudden it becomes so much more accessible and you realize everybody's ability to create and to innovate and to discover and to, and to move things forward and to make improvements. And so that was a big aha. This isn't just a 1% of the population can do this kind of thing. It's way more broad based than that. Mm. Well, I, I, you know, being a, a super creative person, I totally believe that everybody is creative. They're just creative in different ways. That 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 CEOs that are amazing at dealing at crises, they're just being creative. They're just looking at the problem. And I hate to use the the stereotypical the outside of the box. That's all that is is, is saying, okay, here's a crisis. How can we make it not a crisis? What steps can I throw at my team so we can move this off the table? and deal with it so I can deal with the next thing that has to be decided on. And for, for so many people that go through schools that are analytical, they figure, oh, I can never do anything creative. That's not true. A, a great data cruncher, somebody that can do amazing data mining and magically comes up with these numbers that fundamentally change the, the direction of a project or direction of a company, that is creativity at work right there. Uh, and I just don't think people are educated that creativity isn't a bad thing and and uh, a negative thing. It's a very important tool that, like you said, when you become conscious of it, it opens up all these opportunities for you. Exactly. And you, you, you hit it right on the head. That that perspective, I think, is really important to understand. Uh, it's it, it it ought to be part of every one of our jobs, and so so many of our jobs. If you think about it, the job descriptions that each of us either shaped or were hired into tend to focus more on the expected activities, and think about how much of our work needs to be more the unexpected. What new thing can we do that's not already specified? That level of thinking, that level of creative energy is really required by all of us and I think is becoming more and more important. I think someday we're going to see that element of expectation in our work actually be called out in things like job descriptions, whereas today it's sort of like a little extra that maybe gets done in addition to what's on your job description. I think that's starting to change. Well, you know, it's it's interesting too that you know when anybody goes to a job, they get hired for a specific uh, set of of skill sets, and they're interviewed ad nauseum sometimes for those specific skill sets. And day one, they realize that eighty percent of those skill sets will never be used on a day to day basis. And they go like, "But I wasn't hired to do this. Why do you want me to? This is clerical." And what they're realizing is like, "Look, at it's a." A business is a living, growing thing, and every single day it changes, and you have to evolve with the company to excel in the company. Exactly, and isn't that funny? How you and you and you put it right on. So much of what's what you're really doing every day is not actually on your job description. <laughs> you can't necessarily specify. Here is how I want you to innovate and make differences in the job you have. Because mm. what would they say, right? It's not specified, and it is up to the individual to figure that out and to apply themselves and learn how to do that. And this is, I think, you know, going back to your book, this is a fundamental truism of your book. You're kind of telling people that this is the way they should be approaching work. 
it's not like you're an accountant, so that's what you're going to do. It's like, no, you may be an accountant, and that's part of your purview, but your job is to try and make the company more efficient, and your job is to make people happier so that they can work better. And there's all sorts of things that could be totally outside of your purview that will fundamentally change how the accounting uh, ends up you know, adding up, to, to use a very bad pun, at the, uh, the end of the year. So I wanted to ask... Um, What's the best way to approach this book? Is it is it a book that you can get away with like jumping around to, oh, chapter two seems to be good for me or chapter seven, seems, yeah, this is what I need to do. Or should they kind of read it from, from the front to the back? Um, you, you could approach it either way. <clears throat> I think there's some value, particularly in the first section of it, because great work does have a flow. We, we've seen that as we've interviewed so many people and analyzed it, that there are certain ideation type steps that people use on the front end of the great work that they're trying to do before you move into the actual shaping before you actually deliver the final result. So there is there is a flow or a sequence but it does actually lend itself well once you get past the first couple chapters you could jump to a chapter to explore it specifically. Um, but at least uh, the, the, the beginning and the end need to be beginning and end <clears throat> the middle you could you could uh, you could skip around depending on what section you were most interested in mm. uh, one section that really jumped out for me was the mix section uh, going from a good mix to a great mix um, let's talk a little bit what is a mix good question <clears throat> if you think about any work output whether it be a product or a service or a series of um, tasks within a broader value stream. Um, anything we do is actually made up of a mix of elements. And it's a good way to think about it because even a product, let's start with something really simple uh, like my, uh, my suitcase, my traveling carry-on bag that has become a friend to me <laughs> with all of the travel I've been doing lately, uh, speaking at conferences all over the place. That little travel bag that I can take with me um, is a suitcase, but it has two wheels on it. Mm -hmm. And so if you if you examine the mix of that, it's got a handle, it's got wheels, it's got a, a zippered area to, to hang things. Um, and so even that product, as simple as a as a little carry-on bag is, is made up of a mix of elements. It has colors, it has zippers, it has different parts that make up the product. And I, if you think about the work of innovation, <clears throat> you're really thinking about what can I do to um, reshape that mix? What can I do to add to that mix that would increase the value of that particular uh, suitcase, for example, if that's your job? Uh, or what can I remove from that mix to increase the value. So a couple of examples. Somebody, thankfully, took the mix of an existing suitcase and went, wow, the, these things are a pain to carry all over the place. What if we added wheels to luggage? Somebody made that addition to luggage that generated a huge amount of value for anybody, particularly heavier suitcases. Um, they, they generated an innovation there that contributed an enormous amount of value, even though the element that was added was relatively small. The rest of the suitcase looks very similar to a suitcase from, you know, 20 years ago. But by adding the wheels to the luggage, they increased the value of the overall mix. Same thing uh, that you see taking that same luggage example Compared to suitcases from, say, 50 years ago, one of the things that people did was remove weight out of that mix of a suitcase. So moving from uh, those heavy, um, uh, uh, hard uh, walls that you look at an old leather suitcase, for example, or an old trunk, you know, an old steamer trunk from 100 years ago, those were really heavy. They didn't worry so much about the portability um, by changing the materials, they've made that so much lighter. So by removing weight, they've increased the value of the mix. And so for me, it's a helpful framework to think about any 
work product that we're involved with, any output of our work, if you think of it as a mix of elements, it allows you to think about, well, what if I added this or removed that? And changing the mix as the path to innovation rather than think, I've got to start with a blank sheet of paper and envision some whole new thing that didn't exist before. And that is what I think is so intimidating for so many people who think, I've got to bring innovation to my work. They think that somehow they've got to have this magical, uh, uh, you know, whole new thought that just comes in its totality with all its parts and functions. And it's just not how innovation happens anywhere. Innovation happens by looking at the existing mix of elements and saying, what can I do to affect that? And now you have lots of potential things you could add or remove, and that that, that that process can happen indefinitely rather than, again, starting with a blank sheet of paper and trying to envision a whole thing at once. Does that make sense? Oh, and I, totally. And in fact, it reminds me a lot of the way the Japanese many, many years ago tackled it, where they would take a product from North America or from Europe, and they'd approve improve it uh, by doing very subtle things to it and then relaunch it on the market and everybody go nuts. It's like, oh my God, I totally need this watch now. Well, it's exactly the same as a European watch except these two little things are different. Yeah, but that's the big difference. That's why I need it. Um, in the world today, we've kind of got a... Um, almost a ridiculous version of that with uh, smartphones. If you're, exactly. If, you know, if you're an iPhone user, every two years you've got to worry about uh, a new phone. But if you're into Android, like every couple of months, there's a revolutionary new phone. They say, oh my God, that uh, I, I didn't realize I needed that feature until I saw the feature. That's right. And that's that's why it works so well. They don't have to reinvent the phone every time. They've just got to think, what new feature could I add that could increase the value and cause people to say, oh, I got to have one of those. And I think you you, 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 you called out a, just a fabulous example because even if you look at the latest iPhone 6, for example, if you actually look at all of the various technologies that are employed in putting together that mix, if you will, for delivering that that product, so many of the constituent elements are actually elements that have been around for a long, long time. Mm. Look at the cell phone, for example. Cell phone was developed 40 years ago. I, we actually interviewed one of our interviews for the book that you'll read in there uh, was a discussion with the inventor of the cell phone. And so that, that's been around 40 years. If you look at how long has GPS been around, which is a huge value add to connect to maps and everything else, GPS has been around for decades. If you look at touchscreen, that's been around for decades, just not in a phone. If you look at uh, apps, which we have a huge amount of never-ending value in a phone because those are constantly new apps are being launched, computer applications have been around for decades, not in the format of a phone until more recently, the last several years. And so when you break it down, you see them using all of these elements that were already there for a long time, but now integrating them into the mix to increase its value. It's a, it's a, it's a great example of that principle at play, even when you look at sort of the latest and greatest innovation to say, wow, this is the most innovative phone. It's made up of elements that are not at all new. Mm. You know, it's interesting. You know, I talk with uh, people that are, that are a little bit older than me, and, and a lot of them say, I just want a phone, Bob. Why can't I just buy a phone? I don't need all this other stuff. You know, So it, it's, it's a yin and a yang to everything, which actually begs the question, um, you know, with the mix uh, as a tool, can you also incorporate in that the ability for the the your target demographic, your target market to be uh, aware of, that they have to re-educate themselves a little bit more, and are they willing to do that? That's a that's a good point, uh, particularly with technology products mm -hmm. where you can put so much more in. Think about software, for example. You know, Microsoft Office. Uh, everybody uses it, and yet we use such a tiny percentage. And what do you do each time when? new versions come out to help educate people as to all of the new value that's in there. And some will connect with that and, and mine it for its value. 
and others won't. And I think that brings up another principle that we saw, which is sometimes removing elements from the mix actually increase its value. Mm-hmm. Um, think about what happened with video cameras, for example. You know, it was on this crazy race. Uh, same thing with digital cameras, this crazy race to add more and more features, more and more buttons. And what they discovered was, you know, the vast majority of people just use the power button and then the record button and the stop. And that's it. You know, they don't need all of the millions of night shots and scenes and a million other things. And yet they feel compelled to add some of those features for competitive reasons because they're getting their products being compared against somebody else's. But I have seen an effort for companies to try to de-feature and simplify uh, I don't know if you remember seeing the flip uh, camera, mm. uh, flip video camera. I thought that was, I talked to the, the guys who worked on that project, and they had analyzed this, and they found that so much of their market was just wanting people to just be able to literally pull it out of their purse and press the record button to get some video of their grandkids and stop when they're done, and that's it. And uh, so they came out with that that uh, flip device that, literally only had one button. It was a big red record button. And uh, users of that love that. Now, since that time, that's what everyone uses their phones for now. So you don't even need a separate video camera unless you're doing professional work. You just pull out your phone, press the record button, you got it. And so I think it's easy to think about the things that we can add to the mix. And I think that seems to be the default thing people do to create value is what can I add? But I've also seen a lot of value being generated. And I think this is newer as people start feeling like their world's getting more complicated, that I see more and more products coming out that are deliberately trying to simplify. Mm -hmm. And simplify is another way of saying, what are you trying to take out of the mix to make it better for the end consumer? And so I I think we're going to see more of that coming as people react to such a complex world that they live in. Mm. Well, it's like the the zen of a product, the simplicity that uh, you can look at and see that it has one functionality. I mean, I'm a big believer in if you want to if you want to get a great camera, don't worry that it takes great video because you need a camera to take stills. So why would you care if it had video functionality? But a lot of these cameras, there's like, oh, we've got amazing HD and the reviewers are saying, oh, it's a great camera. It does all these amazing things, but oh, the video is not so great. Who cares? I mean, you're not buying a video camera. You're buying a stills camera. So I think a lot of it is the miscommunication um, of all the editorial stuff that we have out there these days because everybody is uh, now a journalist. Everybody has their own network, uh, literally, uh, like a TV network, YouTube. So I think the evolution of um, making products or or working in organizations that make a huge difference uh, for people, the consumer, that they'll love, a big part of it is the social side. Are organizations, or did you see any patterns in organizations that are saying, you know what, we have to go out, reach out, or actually internally have people that create these very non-professional but uh, almost addictive informational videos on YouTube? Mm-hmm. I, I think more, certainly, uh, I see that all over the place. <clears throat> Companies try to do that and make it simple for people to share. Mm and make it simple for people to react to if they like a product, give them the tools to help share it, talk about it, and give feedback as to what they love about it and what they don't love about it so that in the next rev, they can change it. You know, I think in years and years and years ago, people made products and those products had a shelf life of many years. Mm. And so they could, they wouldn't have to move as fast. And I think our world today, that uh, where the speed of change is so fast, it just requires a steady stream of interaction with the end consumer, with somebody, with the person who's using your work or your products or your services so that it will give you the inputs you need to continue to improve it and rev it. You just can't stand still very long. And the companies who, who are standing still and sort of locking in those processes and not coming back to rev them, uh, the shelf life of that value 
is expiring so much faster now than it did years ago. Do you think the um, the way companies uh, use the, the the pivot theory, where you you evolve, you bring a team together, you create a product, you go out on the market, you test the product, and then if you get incredibly negative feedback to the point where would you use this product if it was for free? And they say no. Then you know you've got a dead product. And instead of abandoning it and firing everybody, say, okay, we've got a team. Let's pivot. Let's take all this knowledge and momentum and move it in a different direction. Do you think that's important more so than a company that's uh, innovation for the sake of innovation? I think so. You know, being able to use the learnings you get is vital. You know, one of the uh, one of the other principles we saw that people were doing that led to great work was this concept of um, deliver the difference. See it all the way through until you know the difference is made. And so much of the value that ends up being created that makes the difference was learned toward the back end of the process, not the front end. We, we all go out and we do some product concept testing or we do some uh, early feedback and we, we, we do some prototyping. We, we try to get that. That's all valuable. But even then, you're still making some pretty big guesses about the, the end value and will it in fact make the difference that you, that you thought about. And so much of the value is learned in the back end where people are starting to give you feedback and a case in point, one that you'll uh, that, that that's in the book, um, that that was pretty interesting was the story of Instagram, where their example was they came out with this um, app. The the creators of Instagram first of all came out with this app called Bourbon, and they thought, hey, we we can create an app that would make a wonderful opportunity to invite friends, and if I'm going to a sports bar or something to watch a game, and on this app I could go in and take a photo of what's going on and invite my friends, and they'll all show up at the, at the sports bar to watch the game with me. That was sort of the idea. And so they spent a bunch of energy and a bunch of their own money writing the app, refining it, and rolling it out. And um, they rolled it out, and it was a bomb. It, it just didn't work. People didn't really love it. They thought, well, it's, you know, if, if I was going to meet them there, I would have told them already, and we would have met there, or whatever. They, they just got a lot of feedback that it was not a worthwhile app. That, 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 so, so what a lot of people would do at that point could be kind of just scrap it and move on and just go, you know what, that's l the story of so many startups and so many entrepreneurial ventures. What is the statistic? More than nine out of 10 of those just fail. They don't really materialize. Mm. And I think they could have just thought, we'll walk away from this. But what they, what they, they were in such a good position to learn and they chose to learn. And so instead of walking away then, they reached out to some of the users of this lame app that people didn't seem to want to use and said, was there anything about this that you found valuable? Was there something about this that has a redeeming value that we, we did in fact make a difference? And uh, after polling a number of the people, they discovered that people really liked how simple they had made the photography portion of that. It was so easy to just snap a photo and have it look good when they sent it out to their social network. And people said that was a pretty cool thing. It made it so easy to do that. And so that insight that they gained because they were in the middle of this learning from floating something out there caused them to rethink it. And they kind of went back at it and said, well, what if we really refine that photography element? And so they, 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 they hammered on that for a while. And as they were preparing to relaunch the app, they thought, well, now we've got a different product. And that's when they named it Instagram. Mm. And uh, obviously, the rest is history. I mean, talk about the difference they made. It went from just this bomb app failure to just this phenomenal success that, you know, as you know, they ended up selling to Facebook for a billion dollars. And you look at all of that and you think, isn't that interesting that so much of the difference that they ended up making was found in the learnings they got while they were in the middle of what was previously a failing project? Hmm. Well, you know, it, it is... Uh... It is something that a lot of companies have to understand that failure is probably the most important thing that they can do. 
um, and get over it and to actually have that in an organization. If you have an organization that's managed through fear and if you fail, if you don't do this, you're fired. And all that's going to do is create a bunch of yes people. You're going to have a dead uh, con conceptual company and you're not going to evolve. And you've got to have people that are fearless about failing. That's right. And, and I think it's, you know, a lot of people, you know, there, there's different methodologies out there. You know, Agile talks about, you know, fail fast and fail often so that you can get in the habit of learning enough. And I think no matter what, which way you look at it, people are concerned about failure. And, and what I often uh, share with people is it's, it's less about pursuing failure as pursuing learnings. Mm. If you focus on what, what can we learn from this, let's put something out there so that we can learn what the reaction to it is. Then it's less about, oh, I want to go out and fail, or you know, I, I'm going to be a little haphazard in my work because failure is quickly uh, dismissed or, or uh, you know, forgiven. Um, you don't want people to be shoddy in their approach because failure has become almost acceptable. Mm. I, I, it's hard to ever get to a place where, where failure is acceptable. But I think if the intention and the focus is on the learnings, then, then the learnings you're getting by testing a new concept are, are getting you closer to the answers, not sort of like a pass-fail thing. Mm. Like, oh, it's failed and so you know, wrap it up. It's, ooh, we learned this was the element that was a value, not that. Let's pursue more of this. And so I think with that learning organization in mind, at a team level or as an individual level, that to me is is where the value comes from because you're needing to do it again. If you're trying to create value and you're trying to innovate, it's not a one and done situation. It's not like, okay, I got to gear up innovate. And if I get lucky, it's successful. And if I don't, it fails and it's sort of over. It's just one step in a series of many, many steps ahead to keep innovating. And so that's why to me, the learning is so powerful because you're going to apply that learning on the very next iteration. Yeah, that's so true. It reminds me when I was younger, and I've mentioned this several times on the book show, um, Wiley Coyote, he used to drive me nuts. He's like, you have you buy something and it wouldn't work, and then he'd buy something totally different. And dude, it was so close. Just try again. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Hey, you've got a really interesting part at the beginning of the book, um, and it's both the incredible disappearing school. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. That this was a great example of somebody who made a difference in an area that you would think, um, "Wow, that's that's impressive." Um, this was a guy by the name of Skip Holtz, and Skip is a principal at a little tiny school up in northern New York in the Adirondack Mountains. And uh, I went out and, and interviewed Skip because his story was a great story. Um, he had uh, been accustomed to going up to the Adirondacks every summer to go hunting and fishing from the time he was a young kid. And uh, then he'd go back to southern New York where he worked. And he thought to himself, you know, one of these days, uh, particularly toward the back end of my career, I'd love to go and, and actually live where I like to be. And so I'm going to go apply to be the principal and superintendent of the Newcomb uh, Central School. And it's literally in the heart of the Adirondacks. So he took this job, and uh, the day he started, uh, the enrollment for the entire school, K through 12, was 57 kids. Hmm. A tiny, tiny little school. So when I, when I drove in to go and interview uh, Skip, I was surprised. The school was actually quite a bit bigger. And I said, it was built for like 350 kids, and now there's 57. And I said, well, Skip, you know, were, were people really optimistic when they built the school? And he said, he said, no, it used to be a mining town in the area, and so there were a lot more families, and hence a much bigger school. And they closed the mine 25 years ago, and ever since that time, the population in this little tiny town of Newcomb had been declining, and, and so also had the school enrollment declined. And as he took over, he thought to himself, 
gee, I know how to be a principal. I, you know, he'd been a principal before. He knew the job description inside and out. He did a good job working with the school board and with teachers and with kids and grades and testing and all of the things he was accustomed to doing. But he decided he needed to make a difference there because he said nobody was talking about the bigger problem, which was if you continue to get declining enrollment, they're going to end up having to close the school. And that's miserable for a town, right? Because then you got to start busing your kids out to other schools, and it just hastens the demise of a little community. And so he started asking around, why is nobody talking about this? And I think the reason nobody's talking about it was because it was such a difficult problem to solve. You couldn't have new businesses come in that would bring with them more employees. It wasn't zoned for business. You, you couldn't do that. He looked at the demographics to see are there, are there new young babies being born that are going to come into my school over the next number of months and years ahead. And sure enough, not. There just wasn't the, the demographics. So everywhere he turned, he kept running into dead ends. And then he did one of those things that we saw show up again and again, he decided to talk to people outside that little community and begin to, 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 to bring fresh thinking in. And one of the, one of the uh, conversations he had just happened to be with his brother. Uh, this was around the time of the recession in the United States and that uh, was impacting a lot of the world. And he was talking to his brother who lived in Australia. And they were talking about the economy and this and that. And, and, and the conversation uh, went toward the talking about how in Australia, one of the core uh, elements of the Australian economy was actually the international education uh, programs in Australia. That Australia has a good school system and draws many people, students from around the Pacific Rim, who want to come and learn English and get a good education. They come to Australia. And during that conversation, it sparked that conversation, which wasn't a conversation that said, hey, here's my problem, solve it for me. It was a conversation with somebody in a completely different setting, completely away from his little tiny school in Newcomb. And it sparked the thought in his mind, well, Newcomb would be a great place to host international students. And so he went back, talked to his school board and said, hey, what if we build an international school as part of Newcomb. And everyone loved the idea because they thought we're such a, an isolated little town, fresh ideas and new thinking would be great for the community. And hey, it could really turn around the school enrollment. So then he approached a few families in the local community and said, look, I can't pay you anything, but would you be willing to host a, uh, a student if we can get students coming in from, from other countries? And six families said, you got it. It'd be great for our family. And so he started with six students that he had to learn how to get visas and you know how, how to bring all of this into being with no extra budget, by the way. He didn't have any extra money. He just had to work with what he had. And uh, he, 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 that, you know, six rolled into, you know, a dozen the next year. Uh, when I went out, there had been 18 students that year. And school enrollment last year was 105 students. Hmm. He had got down as I mentioned, 57 when he took over, two weeks into his job, two more kids had left. So he got down to 55 as his low enrollment. He's now all the way up over five years to 105. In fact, it was such a big deal that they hosted a huge party in the school cafeteria to celebrate having got over 100 students in their school because it had been so long <laughs> since they had 100 kids. And so that's that story to me illustrates so much of what we learned in talking to people who make differences. One, he thought about viewing his role as a little bit broader than just what was on his job description. He thought about himself as a difference maker, as somebody who could bring about a meaningful change and improvement in his job, in his work, beyond what was in his job description. It illustrates another principle which we saw, which is people typically work with what they have. You know, we, we hear that little phrase, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. That's the case with most innovation that I've observed. People don't just have mounds of extra money and capital sitting around thinking, well, I've got all this extra resource. What should I do with it? So I'll go do something interesting. Most of the time, it's people who feel the constraints around them, lack of budget, lack of 
uh, team, whatever it is, and yet they choose to work with the existing constraints. He didn't. He didn't take a wrecking ball to the school. He didn't have to demolish anything or change anything radically. He worked with what he had. And then one of the key characteristics that uh, that we see through the pattern of great work was he asked himself uh, a question: What could I do here to make a difference? And then he he looked around. He talked to somebody in his outer circle. Uh, you know, a family member in Australia. And then he looked to improve the mix. He didn't blow it up. They're still the same school. They still have the same classes. But he improved the mix by adding international students that increased enrollment, increased the quality of education. And it was fascinating talking to all the various constituents of who he made a difference for. The community has now more types of conversations, broader conversations, exposure to other cultures, other religions that they never would have had 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 uh, Skip not brought that into place. And one of my favorite conversations was actually with the uh, history teacher. I said, what's changed? What difference has been made here? And she said, one of the big differences is that when you're talking about the Vietnam War or the Cold War and you have a, you have a kid from Vietnam in the room or a kid from Russia in the room, it's a totally different kind of conversation. The quality of discussion is so much better now than it used to be. So that's the opening story uh, because for me, it just brought so many things together. And Skip is a regular guy in a regular job like all of us. And he saw an opportunity that others didn't see to make a difference. And he applied his own skills and energy and so many of the principles we saw at play in the broader research we did were present in his example of, of making a difference that so many people loved. Hmm. Amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, where should people go to find out more about the book or if they've read the book, they want to get more learning? Sure. You know, the book's available uh, everywhere books are sold, Amazon, uh, Barnes Noble, any, anywhere that, that sells books. It's published by uh, McGraw-Hill. And uh, tens and tens of thousands of them have been, have been sold all over. It's now in, I think, five different languages. So it should be available uh, anywhere you're, you're accustomed to buying books. And in terms of getting more information, you can go to greatwork.com, uh, where we've got some videos of some of the interviews we did, some of the individuals uh, from the stories. And uh, it just provides another level of texture and, and shares more insights uh, on that website. Great work, how to make a difference people love. David's been on the show today. Thank you very much. It was awesome. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.